G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor, apologist and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word. This is a passage that most of you have probably read numerous times, but there's something so, so special here and we're going to break it down together. Today with Jeff Vines. Hi and welcome. Thanks for joining me on Today with Jeff Vines. In this message, Pastor Jeff is looking at Colossians chapters 2 and 3, where Apostle Paul writes about striving for higher thoughts. He talks about living as those who have been made alive in Christ and not to just focus on earthly things. Paul is writing to the local church to help them to get back on the right track, to just focus on Jesus. Let's get into this message now on Today with Jeff Bynes. The Apostle Paul writes, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, this is a passage that most of you have probably read numerous times, but there's something so, so special here, and we're going to break it down together. Part of the privilege of a lifetime of Bible study is that at first, when you approach the scriptures, it can be rather difficult because the stories seem incoherent. You're wondering how all this is connected together. But The advantage of being a pastor is over time, it all melds kind of into one. It's kind of like geometry class where all the symbols and the codes are confusing and then one day it all becomes one. Or like spelling, Uh, all the rules, I before E, except after C, all the Latin and Greek roots, all the exceptions to the rules, the assimilations, the etymologies. And then one day you've spelled for so long you realize suddenly there's no word you can't spell, that you become one with the higher truth that is spelling. (laughs) That's one of my favorite lines from Niles Crane on the show Fraser. But something similar happens when you're studying scripture. All the practices and prophecies and reconciliation and redemption, salvation, sanctification. Suddenly, all of these verses, and you realize the Bible is history, his story, and now you know how every narrative and every verse fit together. And suddenly you see something that you've never seen before. So when you read the scripture, every verse stands out now, not just one or two. And this is primarily one of those passages, Colossians 3, verse 1 through 4. But you can't understand the secret to this hidden gem until you understand what's going on in chapter 2. So in chapter 2, we began to learn how there is a church that has begun in the city of Colossae. And it wasn't actually started by the Apostle Paul. It was started by a guy by the name of Epaphras. Epaphras 
heard the apostle Paul most probably preach when he was on a journey to Ephesus. He heard the transformational power of the gospel, the grace found in the gospel. It so changed him that he went back to the city in which he was raised, Colossae, and he began to preach this same good news, this gospel. And before you know it, you have all of these people coming into his church, coming into his community to hear, to celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, the unfortunate part of that is that Epaphras is very young. So he doesn't know the inner workings of the faith, nor does he know many of the foundational aspects of what it is to be a Christ follower. So because he's in Colossae, you have different groups coming in to his fellowship. You have the Greeks, you have the Essenes, and of course, those who are Jewish, most probably that have come over from Judaism into Christianity. So you've got this melting pot, this amalgam of all these different groups. So the Bible tells us in Colossians 2 that a type of false teaching begins to occur because all of these groups bring their own baggage. And it all is centered around, is Jesus really enough? Think about it. The Greeks, the sophists, they want a higher wisdom. So they're thinking to themselves, you know, Jesus is really good and we like this message, but we need, we need a knowledge and a wisdom that separates us from every other religion. Well, the same thing was happening with the Jews who came in to Christianity. They're thinking, well, we still need something on the outside to show that we are separate and different from every other religion. We need circumcision. And then, of course, you have the Essenes who come in on the scene, and they're saying, you know, we need, this, we need this physical aspect to show the world that we are different than every other religion. And in them, it was a, a type of asceticism. Let's punish the outside of our bodies to show how humble we are and to show how we're giving up everything in the physical in order to be spiritual. Epaphras is frustrated with all of this because he doesn't know how to respond to it. And he makes the 120 mile journey back to Rome where Paul is in prison and he gets Paul to write a letter to the church at Colossae. And this is the letter you and I are basically studying and reading. And the primary message of the letter that he sends is this. If you want the thing that sets you apart from all other religions, you don't need philosophy. You don't need some physical, external demonstration, what you have is Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus is all that you need because he makes everything good with you and God. And you will find that the grace of Jesus is sufficient for any part of any journey of your life and any belief system or faith system that you have. Now, that's kind of summarized in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, when he says, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the power and authorities. Now, what he's saying there is that when Jesus died on the cross, Satan and the fallen angels believed they had Jesus right where they wanted him. And the evil one also believes that in relationship to the law of Moses, that he has every one of us right where he wants us. He knows that we can't keep the perfect or the, the law, the perfect law perfectly, and therefore we are condemned by it. And he also knows that Jesus, the Messiah, is about to die. He sees the Messiah, much how the Jews see the Messiah, as bringing in an eternal kingdom on, on planet Earth right now. So in his mind, the death of Jesus 
ruins not only Christ's mission on the earth, but it ruins, it brings us to ruin because we can never keep the law perfectly. The Bible tells us that the death of Jesus on the cross disarmed the powers and authorities of the evil one. It says he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So the message of Paul is this. Now listen carefully. This is a gem, folks, if you'll just stay with me. Paul says, all you need, you find in Jesus. In fact, the only good argument that I have ever heard against Christianity that actually made some sense to me was when a person says, the gospel is simply too good to be true. Now, I can actually understand that a little bit. The gospel is too good to be true. For you to be told that your sins, past, present, and future are forgiven by someone else and their act on a cross, that's, that, that your acceptance before God, your significance in this world is all dependent not on you, but on Jesus, that's just too good to be true. Paul writes a letter to the Colossians and he says, one, everything we need, we find in Jesus. He met the requirements of the law and he gives us the hope of the resurrection and new life. And then he warns them, he says, don't go back to the old way of the law where people are telling you what you can't eat or what you can't drink. Don't go back to, tell, to let, allowing people to tell you that your joy and your significance is found in something that you practice, asceticism or a false humility. You should be able to live now without any anxiety, without worry, without depression, just a life that lives far above its circumstances, a life that is satisfied in Jesus Christ and is assured of acceptance with God on the basis of the work of Jesus. So Paul spends chapter one and two reminding the Colossians, Jesus is sufficient, not only for bringing you into community and relationship with God, but giving you a life of fearlessness that is anxiety-free that lives above its circumstances. Now, as a friend of mine recently said, that's good in theory, but there's something to miss in our lives. In fact, my friend is a dedicated Christ follower and he recently said something to me in a conversation we're having coffee and he said, you know, I am anxious. I do worry. I do get depressed. I am frustrated. This is the real world. And he said, quite frankly, I'm watching our online services that you guys are doing at One and All Church and I enjoy them. But I got to tell you, sometimes I want to point my finger at the camera and say, why are you guys always smiling? Life is not like that. Most people get blasted every day of their lives from every side. So it doesn't seem real to me sometime. As he was talking, I couldn't help. I'm a movie buff. So I went back to Groundhog Day when Bill Murray says, you want a prediction about the weather? I'll give you a winter prediction. It's gonna be cold. It's gonna be gray. And it's gonna last you for the rest of your life. That's how most people experience life, at least in their minds. And the question then becomes, if Christ is sufficient and he's done everything for us, then how do we live this out pragmatically? We don't need any more platitudes. How do we live in these times? How do we live above our circumstances? The only way I can get you to see the gem or treasure that is in this passage is to admit something. Admit that we all struggle. How do we really know that God loves us, that we're accepted by God, when if we were God, we would have given up on us a long time ago. How do you harmonize that? The acceptance of God by the reality of the way many of us live our lives and our frustrations and struggles to do the good. And then the other thing is, how do I survive on top of all this given that I get blasted from every side by the world in which I live? And here's Paul's response and it's beautiful. It can be life-changing. He gives you two pieces of advice. He says, the only way you're gonna be able to live this kind of life is one, set your heart on something 
And then two, to set your mind on something. So we've talked about the grace and peace that comes through the gospel. But now we want to talk about how exactly does it impact our lives? So the first thing is set your heart on something. What is it? Let's go back to the passage. I hope you've got your Bible in front of you or your cell phone or whatever. And I hope you're going through this. Verse one, Colossians three. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts. The Greek word is zeteo. Keep setting your hearts. It's a daily thing, 24 hours a day. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul is saying there's a much better way to live than beating yourself up over your failures. And that way is through Jesus. You have to see that you have been crucified with him. Now, I know you've heard that, but think through this. You have to see your life as in the life of Christ, which means when Jesus died on the cross, you died with him. You were on the cross with him. You died for your sins already because you were in Christ when he died and Christ is in you. Now, this is where our real problem is. Remember in Revelation 12, when we're told that when Jesus died this death on the cross, that the evil one was defeated once and for all. But in Revelation chapter 12, we're told that Messiah has defeated sin and death, but the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them day and night before God has been hurled down. So the Bible says when Jesus died, he lost his place in heaven as our accuser because we are saved and sanctified through grace, not of ourselves, but through something that's been given to us but now the evil one descends upon the earth. And the Bible tells us in verse 17 of chapter 12 in the book of Revelation that now he's enraged at the church and he sets off to make war against her, against those who keep God's command and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So this is the real problem. The evil one is real and your battle now is with him. And part of the problem is we've forgotten that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the higher things, the spirit world. So the apostle Paul in Colossians 1 says to the church at Colossae, look, you want something unique. You want something special. You want to be able to defeat the sin in your life. You want to be able to, to live victorious lives. It starts when you set your heart and you keep setting your heart on that which is above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the father. Now, what does he mean? What does it mean to be place at the right hand of the father. Well, in regard to a king, it meant that you were now on the same level. It, if you, you are seated at the right hand of the king, in this case, the right hand of the father, it means that you've been given the place of ultimate honor. It also means second, that you have intimacy with the king, that you have the ear of the king, that he is interested in the day-to-day -day realities of your life. You have the love and attention of the king. Now, let me build this for a second. Stay with me. I know that for most of you, if someone asked you to explain the Trinity, it would be very difficult. But can I just take your mind back to this for a moment? Remember what the Trinity is. It is God in one being in three persons. Now, think about you. You are, what kind of, what kind of being are you? You are a human being, right? One person, you are a human being. What kind of being is God? God is a divine being. As a human being, you have restrictions. As a divine being, God has no restrictions, which is why God can be one being 
revealed in three persons. So as God expresses himself in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, it was the Son of God who lowered himself a little lower than the angels, the Bible tells us, who made himself a servant and who gave up the privileges associated with glory, with, the, with those, with those uh, attributes associated with being God. He gave up those privileges, not the attributes. He's still one being. Sacrificed those privileges in order that he may achieve the work of Messiahship that you and I could be saved. Now, this helps us understand what Jesus says in John 14, 28, when he says, the father is greater than I. The father is not greater than the son in being. The father is greater than the son in role. It is a distinction of role. So Christ now has completed that mission and now he is seated at the right hand of the father and he has regained his role and his essence with the father. Now, that means his glory has been fully restored. The apostle Paul says to the church at Colossae, if you want to live a life of grace and peace and victory, you have to understand that when the son returned to the father, the father's heart burst for him because the son had emptied himself of all his glory. And he lived a life of purity and humility and honesty and integrity. And that pleased the father. And now the father says, welcome back Son, sit at my right hand. Now, here's the point. Paul says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. That's past tense. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It means the Father now treats you as if you had done all the things Jesus did. Do you see that? He treats you as if you died the death, as if you lived the life, as if you emptied yourself and sacrificed for the glory of God. And now you are every bit as beautiful and glorious as Christ is. You've been raised, past tense. You're seated now. In the sense that you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you have died, you have been buried and resurrected, and now you're at the right end of the Father, which means you've been dead, but you're alive again. All of us, we know what this is like even in the human experience. Have you ever seen a parent that lived their life vicariously through their children? I mean, we all see it. I mean, we can't see it when we do it, but we see it when a parent does it. You, you take a mother who, is, uh, who didn't have a successful childhood, who maybe have struggled with success, and then all of a sudden she has a son or a daughter who excels in something. Let's say you have a son that excels in baseball or basketball. Every victory gives the parent some sense of significance. You, you live out the losses. You live out the victories because you are living your life vicariously through your children. Their success gives you success. Their defeats, they are your defeats and their significance becomes your significance. Now, that is exactly what happens in our relationship with Jesus. Our identity and success is totally wrapped up in him. What he did is credited to our account. That's why, again, the only legitimate reason I've ever heard for why somebody can't accept Jesus is when they say, this is just too good to be true because it is too good to be true. But the reality is it is true that you might say, I just can't believe I could have that kind of joy where, every, where God looks at me and sees me in the light of everything Jesus did. 
But that's exactly the good news of the gospel. That's why it's called good news. And so why would I seek the affirmation of the peasants when I have the honor of the king? So the first thing, if you're going to live a life of grace and peace, you're only going to live it in Christ without any of these pieces of the puzzle. There's no way you're going to be that successful. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to be anxious filled. You're going to be fearful. So first you set your mind on the things above Christ seated at the right hand of the father, set your heart on that. And you will see how God looks at you. And that will give you an incredible sense of peace and joy, even when you fall. And that's what the gospel is. But there's a second piece of advice quickly. Not only are you to set your heart on something, he says, set your mind on something. What is that? Verse two, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now, again, notice the, the meaning here. Past tense, you live now as though you're already with the Father. You have been raised in the past, so now you are with the Father, seated at his right hand. Now, let's build this and then we'll close our time together, but let's do a little building here. What do we like so much about fantasy? I've mentioned some of this before, but in a different light, Superman, Spider-Man, Thor, Lord of the Rings. And it's uncanny because the heroes that we see in these stories are not normal people. Well, they begin though by being normal people, don't they? That's how the story always begins. Just everyday people living everyday lives. And then something along the way, something supernatural happens to them and they whisk away to a world beyond and they witness wonderful, majestic things. They see things none of us have ever seen before. They discover other worlds. And suddenly there is a courage and a freedom and a character and integrity and a higher cause in this other world. But then after all of this experience, they got to return to the normal world. And now they're totally different people because they are living in the full memory of their experience beyond. So, they're now judging the temporary world by what they have seen in the ultimate world, the other world. They laugh more. They move about with more freedom and power. They're more courageous. There is a sense of royalty about them. What's truly compelling about them is they actually begin to laugh, or not really laugh, but take in stride danger, evil, and injustice. And the reason is, is because they've been to the other world and they've seen a far greater injustice and evil and danger. And they saw firsthand how all of that was defeated and beat down by incredibly courageous and powerful entities. So everything in the present world just seems almost benign. Why would they, why would they be afraid of this world when they've seen the next world? They also have a sense of incredible self-control. And it's because They've been to the other world and they've witnessed the poise of kings and queens and princes who were incredibly pure and righteous and noble. And they live now in the memory of the faces that they had seen in the other world and the good that had been accomplished and how evil had been overcome so easily. Now, one final thing in these fantasies and these epics there's always a guy who remains behind so that everybody else can get off the planet. He gives his life for the salvation of others or a girl who deceives the king to lure him into a trap so the others can go free, but she knows in doing so she will lose her life. Epics always include ultimate self-sacrifice. The needs of the many always outweigh the needs of the 
few or the one. In fact, most of us know it wouldn't be a good story unless it had some kind of matter of salvation, someone who died for everyone else. All good stories are made of this ilk. Now, do you see the application? The heroes become sacrificial and noble and humble and selfless because they remember the sacrifice that was made for them. They live with a, a sense of buoyancy. In this little shrunken world, they remember the outside of this world. There's something greater and beyond. So they've seen the great fire quenched. Why worry about fires here? They've seen the great disease healed. Why worry about diseases here? They've seen the ultimate battle fought and won. So why worry about raging battles in this world? Now stay with me. Does any of this sound familiar? Do you know Paul is teaching us that a Christian is a person whose eyes have been opened to the ultimate epic? Only if you have eyes to see the reality of the other world, can you live with greatness in this one? Well, that's a good place to pause this message on striving for higher thoughts. But next time on Today with Jeff Vines, we'll continue with Paul's writing in Colossians chapters two and three. That's what Paul is saying, that your resurrection is guaranteed because it's not dependent on you. It's dependent on the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ through his cross. Your life is guaranteed. You take it all in stride because nothing can compare to the weight of glory that will be revealed in you. Today with Jeff Vines. For more from Pastor Jeff, head to vision.org.au forward slash Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.